Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com. He is Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow. Good to be with you for the next 60 minutes. 201-939-4513 is the telephone number. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. So the full off-season mode has now ignited once again. This is we, a very bad yeah, so I can thing tell for me. You're extremely, extremely very down, down today. Folks. Yes, you can tell. The, the energy level. expression alone. Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm sinking like a stone. The energy level is really down. Yeah, it's going to be a rough uh, five, six weeks, Paul. It but always is. I, I hope you can hang in there with it the rest of us. It always is. Yeah. I dread this part of the calendar. I really do. It's painful for me. Well, before you know it, the end of July will arrive, and training camp will yes. come, and preseason we'll have plenty to talk about, and we'll be able to break down the roster. But Thursday of last week was the last day of mandatory minicamp, so the players are now on their little vacay before they regroup. Pat Shermer addressed the media. He gave his message to the team, nothing new, nothing unique compared to previous seasons. But over the next few weeks, we are going to preview all of the upcoming Giants opponents, so stay tuned for that. We're still going to have plenty of content to go over and yes, we will. make it a substantive discussion over the next few weeks. Today we want to focus on an interesting article up on NFL.com, and obviously if you want to weigh in on just about anything, feel free to give us a call at 201-939-4513. But there was an article that Elliot Harrison of NFL.com put together, and he made the premise of this article the all-under-25 team, where he <laughs> looked across the NFL, players that will be under 25 at the start of the 2018 season. Okay, so it's not necessarily the birthday and the mathematics. you got to be under 25, start of the 2018 season. And he put together a legitimate team, meaning he put together five offensive linemen, a running back, a tight end, and so forth. And there are two Giants on this team, and, and that got us thinking about young players on the Giants roster that have a tremendous amount of upside. Now, the two players on this team... Evan Ingram made the tight end position, and Landon Collins is one of the two safeties. So we want to focus on the two Giants players. If you have any other thoughts on other young players who may be under 25 to start this season. I think those are two very strong candidates when you think about players that are going to be under 25 entering this season. Evan Ingram, an impressive rookie campaign, and Landon Collins has been a guy that's consistently made the Pro Bowl over the last few years. You know, when you mentioned this to me, and, and I didn't have a sneak peek at the list, you know, I, I thought Dalvin Tomlinson, for me, would be a guy I would seriously consider. Uh, in fact, you, you guys know that, uh, you know, I, I do credit data collection uh, to the uh, – PFF and, and analytics folks. And I think I just saw the other day that Dalvin Tomlinson was the leading rookie in terms of defensive tackle run stops in the league last year. He was really good. Uh, well, he just didn't get a lot of credit because the sacks weren't there. And just like he also doesn't play, get a lot of credit. I was going to say he also plays next to a yeah. – a, run gobbler, if you will, in Snacks Harrison, who is the ultimate run gobbler. So, you know, there's no way that anybody next to Snacks is going to get any kind of spotlight because, after all, Snacks is a big man and he's going to take the whole spotlight. And I get that. Both but, literally and figuratively, yes. by the way. Yeah. So I, I think Tomlinson is a vastly underrated player who I know Snacks himself said last weekend he thinks he is going to have a breakout monster year. That is Tomlinson. And so I could certainly make a good case for him 
as an under-25 guy who I would want on my starting 11 on defense. I agree with you. I, I think Tomlinson is a player that gets easily overlooked, and most defensive tackles get overlooked, Paul, when Often. they don't have the sack numbers. Let's face it. I mean, Linville Joseph was in the same boat. And now look at him. But his sack numbers have increased a little bit. Yes, they have. And I think it also benefits him that he's as a he's a member of arguably one of the best defensive lines or defensive line rotations or front sevens in the NFL in terms of what the Minnesota Vikings present. So, you know, there's a lot of different movable factors that you have to take into consideration. But Tomlinson is a good one to even throw out there as further breaking out this coming season and a guy that can really help this defense get back to respectability or at least go from the bottom of the pile to at least midway. Now, confession time for me, when you asked me about this list, I didn't think of Landon Collins. And the reason is, and I think uh, Dan Salomon, our producer, felt the same way, it seems like Landon Collins is older than 25. It seems like he's been around for a lot of years. And, you know, to be honest with you, I think that's a credit to Landon Collins because he has been such a a force on this defense, such a vocal presence, such a leadership presence, in addition to making a lot of plays over the course of his early career. You just don't think of him as an under-25 player. You just don't. I mean, to me, he's 27, 28. He just seems like he's older. And uh, that, that, to me, is actually a compliment to him that we would overlook him on this list. Well, and then when you look at the safeties on the Giants, I mean, he's the veteran voice now all of a sudden. Even when you look at the secondary <laughs> overall, I mean, clearly they have William Gay, but DRC's not here anymore. Well, Jenkins is the old-timer now. So, you know, there's a few voices back. And the Collins, because of his experience, I think by default, registers in that department as he's going to be a guy that some other players will go to to seek advice, and he'll also be the one that's going to be setting and directing the traffic back there. Well, certainly looking forward to seeing him be very vocal as the Giants begin this season, because after all, uh, we know that Betcher's got a very complex scheme, a very fluid scheme, and it's clear Landon Collins is going to be a huge focal point for what the Giants want to do this year. Well, and a scheme that relies on hybrid and versatile players, and Collins, to me, fits that bill. Now, Harrison's breakdown of Landon Collins, just the rationale as to why he put him in this group, he said Collins is already one of the top safeties in the game at 24 years old. His 2016 campaign was worthy of strong defensive player of the year consideration. Besides ranking with Harrison Smith and Earl Thomas, two other notable safeties in the league, he's averaged a remarkable 114 tackles per year, and Collins has been consistent. That's another reason why he's on this list. He's remained durable with the exception of the latter part of last season, Paul. He's been a guy that had played all 16 games. I mean, you penciled him in. Going back to his rookie year, people forget. Mm -hmm. Collins was a starter from day one on this team. Now, you want to argue, well, that was because the Giants didn't have other options, but the bottom line is he beat the rest of the competition out. He earned the starting job, and he had been a key staple of the secondary since his first year. The only thing that he has fluctuated on in terms of his production has been his turnover rate. There have been times ball hawk, and we've seen him, as it was two years ago, go after a lot of picks. Then last year, didn't have as many turnovers, didn't get as many. Yeah, okay, you think so. In any I'm event, not going to revisit a debate what we no, already do spent not, an do exhausted not. time on this program. Uh, in, anyway. any, in any event, um, that's probably the, the biggest area where he has fluctuated because you're right. 
he has been a tackling machine from the position. Now, look, there are times where maybe he could take a better angle, and he knows that. Uh, but at the same time, usually when Collins gets his hands on you, you're going. Yeah. For the Giants' sake. It is when you're the last line of defense. Well, and I go back to a statement that James Betcher made last week when he spoke to the media, Paul. When he looks at the middle of his defense, yeah. from the front all the way to the back, he looks at Snacks, he looks at Alec Ogletree, and he looks at Landon Collins. That's a nice trio of players really is. to be setting the tone at all three levels of your defense. Yeah, I mean, if you're an offensive coordinator, okay, and you're saying to yourself, okay, we're going to cut the field into threes, left, right, and middle. Chances are you're not too excited about attacking the middle. <laughs> yeah, be the area you'd want to stay away from. It just doesn't seem to me that that's the most fertile place on the field. I'm in agreement with you there. <laughs> but that's a good problem to have if you're the Giants, meaning that you're presenting towards the opposition because you know you at least have some veteran leadership in that group and you have experience, which to me is the most important aspect given the fact that when you look at the players around those three players, you're going to have some youth and experience, Paul. So you need the framework of the center of your defense to be extremely strong. And, you know, how many years have we gone over this conversation? When was the last time the Giants had a reliable linebacker in the middle of the field who could stay on the field and right. also direct traffic. The it's durability question yeah. has been huge for both Goodson and Beeson before him. You know what, though? I will tell you this. Ogletree's a different style of linebacker. And let me make this clear to you folks. If you haven't watched him play a lot with the Rams, Ogletree is what's known as a run-and-hit or a chase-and-hit linebacker. He's not your Harry Carson type who's just going to plug holes in the A-gap and the B-gap the tackles, okay, the inside stuffing, so to speak, that, that Harry used to do. Ogletree is a guy where you want to keep him clean, okay, make sure that everybody else is absorbing the, the, the traffic in front of him so that he can roam sideline to sideline. See, that's where he's most effective. He's more like uh, Antonio Pierce than he would be Harry Carson because this is a guy who's going to be able to cover a lot of ground and he will track guys down as they're trying to run to the outside. That's that's the kind of, of style that he plays, and it's unique in that the Giants really have not had a guy like that since Pierce. Uh, in a way, even though he's an inside guy and Jesse Armstead was an outside guy, he's more like an inside linebacker's version of Jesse Armstead. If you remember how Armstead played, he didn't blitz a ton, did not get a ton of sacks, but, boy, he could cover ground sideline to sideline. I mean, he was the weak side backer, but it didn't matter. If you ran away from him, he could track you down all the way across the field. And that's the kind of guy we're talking about with Ogletree. Well, and remember, Ogletree has experience based on his days with the Rams of playing on the outside and the inside. Yes. So that's another reason why he can transition to varieties of positions and also can be utilized, I think, with different angles on the field, depending on what you ask for him from an assignment perspective. But I think at the end of the day... The, why, the reason why I look at him as a middle linebacker providing stability for the Giants is the fact that think about how many voices, think about how many different players they've had to utilize at that spot because of injury or because of inconsistency in production. So regardless of what his role is going to be in the defense, Paul, I guess my point is you have to go back to an Antonio Pierce when you said, hey, every single Sunday you know he's going to be the guy 
and yeah. he's going to be able to get the voice in his head from the coaching staff and then direct traffic onto the field. Basically be the extension of the defensive coordinator on the field. I like the fact that Goodson's game is a little different than Ogletree's. Again, Goodson is a little more of the plugger type. Yeah. He's and the guy so that just goes straight down the line. And he does contrast with Ogletree. Yeah. So it's a good mix to have those two guys standing next to each other on the inside of that 3-4. Now, with respect to Evan Ingram, who's the other addition to this under-25 team, Elliot Harrison wrote the following. It's a brutal season in New York. Ingram developed into a bright spot as a rookie. While more people focused on O.J. Howard in the 2017 NFL Draft, he was taken 19th overall by the Bucks. Ingram quietly tallied 64 catches, 722 yards, six touchdowns last season. Top three amongst uh, rookie tight ends, I think, in almost every offensive category. Uh, there's, there's really nothing not to like about him. And, folks, look, you know how I feel about one-dimensional tight ends. Well, Evan Ingram came here and showed a willingness immediately to attempt blocking. This is a guy who did not want to be a one-dimensional tight end. He did not want to be just a pass catcher. He came here and he said, I want to learn. I want to be a, I want to be a complete tight end. And he gave all of his effort into trying to become a legitimate blocker. And I really believe that he showed he is a two-way tight end albeit only the, the first time really in his career when you consider how much he lined up as a receiver. This, you know, it's really, to me, astounding at how far he has come along in only one season. Big credit to Kevin Gilbride, uh, you know, Kevin's son, who was the Giants' tight ends coach last year, who really coached up Ingram to be a, a fully all-around productive type of tight end in his rookie season where he was not just a pass catcher but he also was able to mix it up and do things in the running game I, I I can't say enough about what Kevin did with him I wish him well with the Chicago Bears he got lost in the coaches shuffle as the Giants were changing staffs he'll do a fine job for them and uh, I just hope that Ingram continues to progress in both receiving and running the ball because uh, the sky's the limit for him he certainly has the tools to become an all-star in this league. Only other player in the NFC East to make this team, Ezekiel Elliott, running back for the Dallas Cowboys. That's it. No Redskins, no Eagles made this team. Now, this is just the opinion of one writer. That's not to say that there's no other upside within the division, but I think it's unique that two Giants made the team, and we are talking about a roster that is relatively young when you look at the makeup of this squad. They took one running back or two? Took one running back. No, actually, you know what? I stand corrected. They took two. Uh, Alvin Kamara was the second. So they took two running backs okay. on this team. I could see them taking the Saints kid, and I could also see them taking Fournette of the Jaguars over, over Elliott if they wanted to, simply because Elliott has had issues. Let's face it, he's also coming off of a suspension, which cost him a big chunk of the season. And, you know, with the way he has conducted himself during the early part of his career, look, he's just another misstep from having to sit out again. And it's going to be a heck of a lot longer next time. So if I were going to build a team of under 25 guys, under 25 age guys, I'd want Fournette before I want Ezekiel Elliott. No, and I get that. You're I wouldn't want to gamble. Well, you're considering the off-the-field issues. I don't know if he necessarily took any of that into consideration. I don't know if he did my, either. My guess is he didn't. I think he's just looking at how old they are and the upside they have and what they've already shown on the resume. Because to make it clear, no rookies that were drafted this year are 
on this team, nor should they be, because let's face Who's it. Who's his quarterback? None of them have played. Jared Goff of the Rams. Over Wentz. Wow. I mean, you can make a now, case for both of them. Now, is that because he took Wentz's injury into consideration? Maybe. Possibly. Which then means if you're going to take that injury factor in, into consideration, you can certainly take the off-the-field suspension for Elliott into consideration. You can. I just think that the injury perspective is something that could have a far greater impact in terms of production on the field when you take into consideration well, Carson Wentz and whether or not you think you he's going to get back to 100%. If you get suspended for a season, no, you can. there is zero production. Well, of course, but it's not. I mean, Elliott had the one suspension and yes, it's still a small sample size in terms of his career, but I don't know if I would necessarily label that as big picture perspective. It's a sign of what's yet to come. Carson Wentz, early in his career, suffers a torn ACL. He's a quarterback. We've seen a lot of quarterbacks. Yeah. They suffer knee injuries. You don't know if they're going to be as effective. That, to me, right now, based on their career, is a little bit more concerning than perhaps a suspension. But all things that you do have to take into consideration, just sure. like when you go out and sign a free agent. you got to take all of these things into consideration, too. But I just think it's interesting when you look at the league and how there's a number of players under 25 to start this season, and really all across the board. The Saints have had a number of players on this list, but the Giants also have two. And to answer your question, the Jaguars, you know, they also had two representatives, but he went heavy on defense, and I can't say he's wrong. He went with Miles Jack and Jalen Ramsey, so maybe that's why he went with Elliott over Fournette. He didn't want to necessarily make it the all-Jaguars team <laughs> under 25 years old, even though you can make a strong case with a number of players that are following the youth movement there. I know you'd like to get to the calls, yep. but there is a tweet that I'd like to get to first. Sure. Uh, Lisa, one of our favorite uh, viewers and tweeters and followers of Big Blue Kickoff Live, Wants to know, uh, she had a debate with friends yesterday and wants us to chime in on this. She wants to know who will have the most touchdowns on the Giants this season, Barkley, Beckham, Stewart, or Ingram. Uh, four good choices, especially when you consider that Stewart's reputation is as a goal line back, so he could indeed be a touchdown monster for those people who play fantasy football. You and I do not. Well, I play fantasy football. You do? I do. I play fantasy football. I thought you football. did not. No, I play fantasy football. I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a diehard. I don't necessarily look at stats as the only indication of how good a player is. I, now I know ha- you I, certainly don't play I fantasy football. I now have football. to think less of you. You understand That's fine. That. Hey, I am certainly not going to lose sleep over this. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, it's okay. All right. so You can bring me down on the ladder. Let's yes. help Lisa out with sure. this question. Uh, it's it's a tough one to answer, to be perfectly frank with you, because, A, we, we don't know exactly how many touches Barkley's going to get this year. You know, will he get 15 a game? Will he get 20 a game? Will he be the goal linebacker? Will they take him out for Stewart? We don't know that. Um, you know, is Beckham still Beckham when he gets back out on the field after ankle surgery? We don't know that for sure. And Ingram, year number two, Teams will play him differently, <laughs> trust me, after what he did last year. Yeah, I think they should play him differently. Just a bit of advice. All right, so go ahead. You go first. Well, I mean, to me, this is not that challenging. I understand Odell Beckham has question marks, but I look at this more of a target standpoint because that's the only way you could factor in if you want to project touchdowns. Odell Beckham, to me, still is separating himself from the rest of the pack in terms of the player 
with the best ability to find the end zone consistently. So I would say it's Beckham until I see a little bit more of a sample size out of these other guys. Stewart could be the vulture on the goal line, but I still don't see him topping Beckham. Barkley, I personally think, is going to have more receiving touchdowns than rushing touchdowns. So do I. Okay. Now, will he have a combination of both? Yes, I figure he will. I still think Beckham is going to top him. And Evan Engram, how many did Engram have last season? What did we say, six? I think it was six. six. Beckham, to me, has had double digits in every single season, which he's played the full year. So even if Beckham is on the low side this year, Paul, let's say Beckham has nine, okay? Let's say he fails to get double digits. Do you think that Stewart, Anger, or Barkley are going to have more than nine? See, Because that's me, the way that I look at it. It's between Barkley and, Beck- and Beckham because I think Beckham will have probably close to a dozen again. Like okay. he just so seems you're going to have more on the year. high side. I'm, I'm playing the conservative Okay, route. but if you want to give Odell Beckham nine touchdown catches, well, Barkley could very easily run for four and catch six. Yeah, that's I ten. That's possible. That's ten. Last time I checked the math. So that means Barkley's got a legitimate chance, according to those numbers, of of edging at Odell. I just think that Stewart, Goldman, and maybe the tight ends are a little bit more of a threat to Barkley than they are to Beckham. Because I still look at the guy throwing the football for the Giants Mm -hmm. has very good chemistry with Odell Beckham. And I don't think Eli, not that he's going (laughs) to overdo it with Beckham, Paul, but my my statement is I don't think Eli is going to say, well, you know, we've got to make sure Cody Latimer gets X amount of targets every (laughs) single game. Or I've got to make sure that, you know, I give Sterling Shepard as much as Odell Beckham. Eli knows – he puts it up there. Yes. Beckham's going to have an opportunity to make yes. plays. I don't see those numbers dramatically going down. So, therefore, targets and touchdowns are usually synonymous with one another. And Beckham's still going to get the targets this season. That's why my money's on him topping the list. Okay. I'm also going to go with Beckham, but I think it's a close call. No, that's I think fine. Barkley I don't could think be you're crazy right for on his tail. Close. But I will, I will also well, go with Beckham. Let me ask you this before we okay, open Lisa, up the phone Okay, Lisa, there's your answer. Yeah. We're going to go with Odell Beckham. Now, I don't know if Lisa took that player when she was having the debate. You can certainly respond to us on Twitter. I'd be curious to see where you stand. Who do you think is going to have the most targets out of that group, though? Oh, I think it's probably got to be Beckham again. Okay, so that's another reason why I think it's easy to make a case that he's going to lead this group in touchdowns. Because if you think he's going to have the overwhelming amount of targets then it's natural to think that's going to give him the most opportunities to get into the end zone. The interesting play here is, out of this group, who would be second in targets? Because Barkley, we agree, is going to have a role in the passing game, and Evan Ingram, you could see his role continuing to grow. Yes. Boy, that's a really good one. Because I think we would agree Stewart's four on this list. Stewart's going to be the fourth guy in terms of targets. Yeah, but here's the thing. In terms of targets... Barkley's an impossible matchup. Now, that's not to say Ingram is not a very talented player, and he does, you know, he's a problem for any defense. But you've got a better chance of putting a safety on him or even a a, a nickelback on him than you do Barkley. Barkley is not going to be fun for anybody to cover. Okay, let's just make that very clear. He's a nightmare, and and he will be – the check down. He's going to be that third option, that check down option, that safety valve. Security blanket. So 
you know, there'll be times when Eli's looking for his first, second, and third guys to throw to, and he can't do it. And Barkley, by default, even though the play may not be designed for him, he's going to get a lot of targets his way just because the other guys might might not be open. So I, I think Barkley probably is, is going to get the second amount of targets, second most amount of targets. Christian McCaffrey, to me, is an interesting comparison, just given his versatility. So I'm bringing up his numbers. Once again, I would be very surprised if Barkley matches these numbers. Christian McCaffrey had 80 receptions last season, Paul. Uh, Barkley won't have 80. Okay. I could see him having 55 to 60, though. Okay. I could could see that. I don't think that's crazy. But McCaffrey had 80 receptions on 113 targets, (sighs) which is pretty good (laughs) last time. Wow. And not only that... 113 targets was number one on the team. It was actually tied for first. Devin Funches also mm-hmm. had 113. Now, this is, I know what the counter-argument's going to be. Well, the Panthers didn't have anywhere near Odell Beckham or maybe right. even Sterling Sharp and uh, Shepard, excuse me, and Kelvin Benjamin, if you recall, was traded away at the deadline to Buffalo. Right. So... I agree with that perspective. I understand they didn't necessarily have a prominent wide receiver. It's natural to think McCaffrey is going to get the majority of the targets. But even if McCaffrey is the number one guy, 80 receptions is unreal. (laughs) It's a lot. So I don't care about the dynamics of the team. 80 is just, I mean, that number immediately jumps off the page. The next closest total in terms of receptions last season for the Panthers, Paul, was Funchess. He had 63. So McCaffrey still had 17 more than the next closest guy. That's a lot. That is a lot. Would be absolutely stunned if Barkley gets to those numbers. Uh, final thought from Twitter, and then I want you to get to the phone calls. Uh, Parunga Salzer wants to know if Jonathan Casillas is still a free agent. Yes, the outside linebacker is a free agent right now. Uh, I have not seen Jonathan for quite a while, so I don't even know what his plans are, whether or not he's decided that he's had enough. And after all, he's had a very... is a free agent. And I could see him being a guy that a team maybe adds right before training camp or waits to see if there's an injury that occurs, that type of thing. He was a co-captain here, so you know he's a good locker room guy. I think that's pretty much accepted that he will add something to a team. Now, whether or not he wants to play... Uh, wants to be a role player or a backup for somebody. Uh, those are questions that only he can answer. And I, like I said, I have not talked to him. It would not surprise me if New England comes calling again. You know, he's the type of player that you sure. would think, right, Belichick of the Patriots sure. may want to revisit, given the fact that he's familiar somewhat with well, the remember, team. he's got a couple of rings, too. Yeah, so... It wouldn't surprise me if, you know, a team like that adds him into the mix later on. All right, let's open up the phone lines. 201 Here we go. Let us have it, folks. Lloyd is in (laughs) Pennsylvania. Lloyd, what's happening? Hey, good morning. Uh, Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. Um, Wanted to talk about the running game comparatively to last year and also the defense. Um, The running game last year, I think I called in before, and I think I talked about this a little bit. You might remember it. But it, it seemed like uh, Coach McAdoo didn't have um, a thorough game plan as far as the run. And the offensive line set up, everything was geared towards the pass. Um, this year, I think it's going to be a little bit different. But uh, my expectation is because we will be a little bit less predictable in running the ball, we'll have more success on the ground keeping the defense off the field. Like between um, our punter having a bad year and our offense running the ball and managing the clock 
um, efficiently, it put our defense in um, the worst possible shape. And as soon as B.J. Goodson went down, it was an issue. So we didn't have a, a, a run-thumper, run-stopping middle linebacker anymore. And it, it, it just seemed like it was going to be a problem. And as a result, it looked to me like our, our record reflected what was lacking in the running game. And our defense, our defensive ranking also reflected what was lacking in the running game. Does that jive? Yeah, well, you have to understand. Um, you know, Richburg was a better pass-blocking center than a run-blocking center. Jerry, a better pass-blocking guard than a run-blocking guard. We know right. that Bobby Hart had troubles, you know, really getting his act together during the course of the season. We know that Eric Flowers, even though, you know, he's been much maligned, uh, actually did a decent job in pass protection last year and had more troubles in the run game. So if you're calling plays and you know that your offensive line is much more proficient at pass blocking, that's the way you're going to lean. So while I agree with you, it was the case, there's certain reasons for it to be that way. And I think the Giants' offensive line this year projects to be a much better run-blocking offensive line than they've had here in years past. And that in itself should make them a more balanced attack, especially when you consider that Shermer with the Vikings last year, was the most balanced of any of the offenses in the league. Well, can I make a case for something before you let me go? Sure. So if the year before had 11 wins, um, and this year, um, well, not yeah, the year before we had 11 wins, this year we, have, we had uh, three. Is it safe to say that all of the things that happened, and the injuries included, that we were – really not as bad a team as our record indicated and you know let's say if we if we could uh flex our record out to project um uh the the talent that we actually had on the team last year wouldn't you say that they were at least a six or seven win team yeah i think that's fair and and to be honest with you you know things kind of fell apart there toward the end of the season because it was just kind of spiraling out of control yeah but i think if you consider the giants roster I think, I think they were the equivalent of what a six and ten team probably would be, or what it would look like. They did not look like a three win team at, in the middle of the season when you looked at that starting lineup on both sides of the ball. This this was not a bottom of the barrel team. Now, of course, the injuries continued to pile up, and by the end of the season, they were bringing guys in from everywhere, including your neighborhood bowling alley. I yes. mean, it got really right. tough there well, at because the of all the injuries that exactly, yeah. especially in the secondary. I mean, it was just who's who every every weekend. But I do agree with you. I think it was a much closer to being a six-win team when they were, you know, relatively healthy than a three-win team. Which means, if you believe that, they've only got to jump another three wins or so to be in the conversation yeah, for a possible wild card. Well, I, I, listen, the, the other thing you got to take into consideration, though, Lloyd, is, I first of all, I shy away from comparing seasons because it's rosters hard to do. change you're a right. lot. And, and yeah. the other thing is, 2016, which you're referencing, 
I will continue to say this, and I'll sound like a broken record. If you go back to the 16th season, you have to understand, they won a lot of close games. Games that could have mm -hmm. easily went the other way. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't earn the 11 victories. That's not my point. But it wasn't an 11-win dominant team. They weren't blowing everybody out by 10 to 15 points where you were like, wow, I mean, this is the top caliber of double-digit victory teams. They were a team that easily could have went 7-9 and nine. if I go back and I look at four games and I say the ball doesn't bounce their way, maybe it doesn't necessarily truly come to fruition Every that way. Every team in the NFL could well, there's probably a lot. Yeah. float their record by two or three wins in any given season simply by the way the ball bounced. That's what you get with parity. Right. Well, that's why I think it's easy to make the case if you look at the three wins last year. Yeah, I mean, it's not that much of a stretch to say all of those close games that were played early in the season when they got off to that slow start. Right. If they get a defensive stop against the Eagles, maybe you go to overtime. Yeah. The Chargers, you don't fumble the ball with Eli Manning. That sets up a goal line touchdown. Of course, I mean, we could have played the coulda, woulda, shoulda games for everything. And you could say you give them an extra three wins or you take away losses. My, my point is the 11 win team in 2016 was also very different from the makeup of the 2017 team. Yeah, and the 18 team yes. is going to be very different than the makeup of the 17. Well, it, it's I'm not so concerned. simple to say, well, if you give them three more victories, they're a little bit closer to what the 16 team looked like, I guess, is my big point here. Right. talent that we have on the field for this year. Yeah. No, I, I, no and, and from a talent thank you. I'll, I'll yeah. let you go. And, and Lloyd, I appreciate the phone call. It Thanks is a you. very difficult schedule once again this year, and you do have to take that into account. At least we expect it to be a difficult schedule, and you never know until you actually get to those weeks and you see who's on the field. But, uh, look, this team has its work cut out for it. Let's not kid ourselves now. They are going to be climbing uphill. Now, how far they can climb uphill remains to be seen, but – at least they're going in the right direction. Well, based on all the changes that were made and players that were brought in to address some of the issues that plagued this team in 17. But to Lloyd's point, if you're looking at it just from a talent perspective, meaning we're looking at the roster on paper and we're not necessarily taking into consideration the dynamics of the outcome of the games, if you go back to early last season in 17, Paul, before the rash of injuries started, mm -hmm. that talent was sufficient enough to win football games. Okay? Yeah. For the first five games of the season. Okay? I know. The Chargers game was week five, and they were not winning those games. No, so they were not. So that's another reason why you can't just go based on the paper test and say, oh, well, it looks mm -hmm. good on paper. You're right. There's a seven-win team. There's an eight-win team. Play the games, baby. So play the games. It's a hollow conversation is my point. It doesn't matter how glowing this team looks on paper. First five games of the season last year, team is relatively healthy. Now, you could say B.J. Goodson was a little bit banged up. Team was relatively healthy. All right. Okay? All right, all right. They had their I'm, offensive weapons. I'm going to help you out just a little yeah. bit here. You're, you're overstating this whole thing because what the call is really trying to say is that you knew, for example, the 1975 Giants going into that season at Chase Stadium, you knew that was a bad football team. You knew. It was not a good roster, and even if everything went great, they were not going to win a lot of games. Okay. You knew the teams at the Yale Bowl in 73 and 74 were bad football teams, and they were not going to win very many games. The caller's point is you look at this roster and you say, you know what, there are players on this roster. This team should win. 
a sufficient amount of games to be competitive. You know, you can tell over the summer if the team is just non-competitive and, and well, I, and, I don't think, but my and po- they're not going to be in any conversation. Well, but my point is, none of us thought this was a three-win Giants team last summer well, when that, we all thought that they were potentially going to the Super Bowl. Well, that that, but that's my point. My point is, when you looked at the seventeen roster, you saw a competitive team. Nobody was necessarily crowning them, but you saw a team right. that was going to go out. With well, that and that's roster what he's trying and to win do. games, he's trying to he's trying to ask us: Do we think that this eighteen team on paper looks like they will be sufficiently competitive? And, and I my, think I yeah. think they should be. And my answer would be yes. But, but that's what he wants to know. No, okay. Well, if we're gonna just end it there, then yes, the answer is that's yes. That's what he wants to but, know. But I guess just answer the man's question. My my answer though, in in the big picture of things, is that means absolutely nothing. It, well, it, it doesn't until nothing. until January. Yeah. So, I understand that, so, but that's not what he's asking. I, I get that. He's but, asking in June. Okay, but, he's asking us in June. Is there reason to believe this team will be competitive? I think we need to. I just, I, I just, but I could say my point is, if you ask me about half the rosters in the league, Paul, I would say the same thing. So, that's okay. It, Look, once well, again. Because the league is full of parity. Yeah, exactly. A so ton of teams think that they can be competitive, and so, they should. Yeah, but it's no better indication of what this team is going to do. And, and well, that, to me, I'm not going to get into names, folks, but no, there but are that, at least two or three teams right now who you could pretty much, pretty much bank on. Well, and they that's will about not it. be in the playoffs, and that's about it. But that's a very small percentage when you look I at get all it. the 32 teams. But better to not be in that list right now yeah. than to be on it. But there were over the last few years, Paul. If you look at the Giants rosters, I don't think we've ever had a conversation where we were thinking bottom three in the league. No. Well, that's not I the mean, way e- this organization e- no, no, does business. Even even years where you know maybe the talent pool wasn't overwhelming, never had the thought that it was going to be no, bottom three, no, bottom You five. never go into a season yeah. thinking it's going to be that bad Correct. unless you were, like I said, back in the 70s. Of course. You kind of yeah. knew it wasn't going to I mean, be you good. I mean, you always felt 500 is a legitimate shot. You know, when you Just go into the season, season and you know that Billy Taylor is your starting running back wow. or Joe Dawkins yeah. is your starting running back or Walker Gillette is your starting a number one wide receiver. You know it's probably not going to work out too well. Well, and that's why the Cleveland Browns, I think, have had a lot of familiar yes. conversations. Can we get to more calls, yeah, please? Wait, wait, now you're shying away from football. No, I just want to get these people to me. In. How you? They're taking the time it's, to call us. Wait, Let's get them gonna, on. It's not one o'clock. Relax. We'll we'll, we'll get to everybody. I, I have full faith, Paul. Okay. We've, we've done this show long enough. Yes, we'll we get have. everybody in. Coach Marvin is in Delaware. Coach Marvin, what's happening? How you doing, Paul? And Lance? what do you How say, you Marvin? Yeah, you guys are funny today. <laughs> hey, you know what? We're just trying to have a good time. It's a down period, as you know. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's a down period. Um, I was just calling um, about my input as far as the defense goes. I know I was listening Friday, and um, the you know a little concern is that third corner. And, and if you're concerned about your third corner, I'm sure you. Concern about the fourth and fifth guy. Sure, um, but I, I, you know, I believe they're probably going to look at the supplemental. They may. I'm sure they're going to evaluate these guys. There's three top guys that are secondary guys, so mm-hmm. we we'll have to have to see what they they do with those guys. This guy Bill is a pretty good. Uh, Sam Bill is a pretty good uh, uh, cover corner who can also play in the slot. So there's some interesting guys there. You know what, Marvin? I would say this to you though. Um, uh, the supplemental draft, as you know, a lot of teams like to shy away from it because they don't want to give up 
one of next year's draft picks to grab one of these guys, especially since it only goes three rounds. So what a lot of these teams are going to do, I, I think, especially with these three players, you're talking about Sam Beal from Western Michigan, right? Uh, Adonis Alexander from Virginia Tech. Those are the two defensive backs, uh, the corners, and Brandon Bryant, the free safety from Mississippi State. Those are the three guys who really have draftable qualities going into the supplemental draft. I think a lot of teams, and maybe even all of them, it would not shock me at all if they all sit tight, nobody spends a draft pick on them, and then works the phones like crazy trying to sign them as an undrafted rookie free agent. Because, A, you don't have to give up one of next year's draft picks, and you don't know where you're going to be picking next year because the season hasn't even started yet. So teams shy away from doing that. And also, you're probably going to be able to give the guy less money and less guarantee if you, if you wait till after the supplemental draft is over. Now, of course, the problem with that is you're now bidding against other teams. But if you think that you can rope him in that way, there are a lot of teams I guarantee you are interested in, in at least one of these guys who are going to try to go the free agent route. I, I can agree with that, and that, that's a good way to get it. But um, it, it depends on, I believe, it depends on the grade that you're going to give them. No question. Uh, on a supplemental, you don't want to lose a, uh, a top four draft pick on a supplemental no, guy. Of course so, I, I mean, all you have to do is throw your bid in and, and, and see what happens. Um, it can be a low bid and um, and see what it happens can. in that bid. The, the rule because of thumb, the rule of thumb, Marvin, just so you know, the rule of thumb in the NFL that, that's kind of across the board, uh, talent evaluators usually say wherever you think that guy's grade is, whatever his round grade is, subtract one round if you're going to take him in the supplemental. So if you think he's a second-round value, that means you're going to submit a third-round bid. If you think he's a third-round value, then you're not going to submit a bid at all. You're going to wait to free agency. Yeah, I, I, can, I agree with that. And, um, and, I, and, I would probably, and I was doing the same thing. I was looking, you know, I would throw a fifth or sixth-round bid in, and then you don't know what the other team's doing. Like you said, there may be plenty of them looking for Well, the supplemental only goes three rounds, though. So you don't, you're not going to do a five or a six. It only goes three rounds. After three, the guy becomes a free agent. Oh, it's after three. Oh, okay. All right. I thought they, they can bid whatever they had and what they could lose. Um, if it, how many rounds we ever have in the draft, I thought that's what the bid would be. I do not um, believe that's the case. Okay. All right. I, I, I take your word for it. I mean, I mean we can look it up, but. Uh, I'll take the word for that. But then if that's the case, no, I'm not going to – because these guys are not third-round picks. They, they, they're coming up between third to seventh-round picks. Um, so if that's the case, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put a bid in at all. Um, the other thing I was looking at was the um, on the offense. I see that they, they did a lot of uh, pickups of tight ends, and I get this feeling that we're going to see a lot of 12 personnel this year which will open it up for Ingram. Um, I think it's going to be very difficult to match up with them depending on what the defenses does. Well, Red Ellis and Kyle Carter both have familiarity with Pat Shermer's system because they were in Minnesota. That at least bodes well for the two of them to have a legitimate shot to make the roster number one. And then probably Shermer and company can envision utilizing them knowing that they already have some familiarity with the system. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about production. 
That's what it comes down to, Marvin. I mean, if you feel that those guys give you the best chance to execute the play, you'll put them on the field. But I'm not one for just putting them on the field for the sake of putting them on the field. If you think that three wide receivers are bound to pose a difficult challenge to the defense, much more so than different alignments, you go with the three wide receivers. I mean, that, 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 you know, I understand people are tired of seeing the same formations, but last year, the whole point was, why would you take your top weapons off the field just for the sake of appeasing fans and putting different looks on the field. I mean, and th- I, that to me made absolutely no sense. I, I agree with that because, for, I mean, you, if you bow down to fans, I mean, you, you're going to find yourself one of them. Um, you, that, you, yeah. can't, you can't coach that way. But the, the reason I was saying the 12 personnel, I mean, my thing is the, the 12 personnel is in exchangeable parts. As I write on my board, here, I'm, I can write up stuff on the board at what type of plays I want to run based on what we already are running. And what I can do is I'm looking for the matchups. And what happens is the, my thing with the 12 personnel, which New England did exploit throughout through the NFL that the year they had the two tight ends, is what they did is they want to see what you're going to do defensively. What kind of personnel are you bringing out mm-hmm. on the field if we go 12 personnel? Because if you go if you go nickel and bring in an extra back, then we're going to run it down your throat. And if you try to match up with your base with three linebackers, we're going to spread you up with people like Barkley. That's why you see Barkley moving around in the slot, and yeah. stuff, which is what McCaffrey, we don't know how many catches he got out of that slot, um, playing in that slot position. But you can move back on um, um, Barkley out. You also, what you can do, Ingram can also play outside the numbers. Ingram also can play inside the numbers because you can go, um, uh, you can go 11 personnel with a person like Ingram on the team where you can put them on the outside, put them on the inside, or you can take Sterling Shepard, put them on the outside, put them on the inside. So many exchangeable parts out of that 12 personnel that it can confuse a defense of how you want to match it up. And the only thing that's going to save a defense in this sense is our our front guys against their front guys, can they get a pass rush to disrupt that if we're doing stuff like this? Um, and, and I think that's the only weakness that's going to be on this on, the, on this offense. Is can the offensive line hold up long enough to exploit these defenses? Because this is, I think there, people better take notice, this is a very difficult offense of people to match up with. Ingram is yep. unbelievable against linebackers, and, and it's going to kill teams if they can't get pass rush. Oh, because of the versatility, to your point, and appreciate the phone call, Coach Marvin. Marvin, before you go, uh, I want to correct myself. Uh, over the years, the supplemental draft rules, I believe, have changed or been tweaked. So maybe there is a bid where you can put in a fifth-round bid, and there if is. that's the highest yeah. bid, you get it. Maybe, maybe I'm thinking under an old set of rules here. So I want to be clear. I, I don't 100% guarantee what that answer is right now. So you may have it right. I'm going to do more research on it, hopefully have a better right. answer for you tomorrow. And, 
and they and they and the other teams don't know what your bid is. It's no, like no, it's a client. And then your bid, and Correct. then they, they they take all the bids from the league, and the best bid is going to get right the player. I always knew it was a closed envelope bid, if you will. But what I did not know is I, I was under the impression, and, and again, maybe it, there was rules at one time where it was only three rounds, and if it went after three and no one bid in the first three rounds, the guy was automatically a free agent. I may not have that right now. I want to confirm that. I'll get back to you tomorrow. Well, normally right. – and, and the other part of that, um, Paul, is you got to think, uh, something, most of the time these guys don't have a third-round um, grade. So, you again, we, we don't see many of the – players in supplemental drafts. It's only a, uh, a few and probably less no doubt. than a handful of well, guys. The Giants have yeah. taken two, you know. you know. Do you know who, Marvin? I bet you you do. In Not their bad. history, in the Giants' history, they've taken two supplemental draft picks. You, you uh, know one of them was a quarterback from Duke. Right, David. Yes. Dave Brown. The other Dave, one was Dave, Tito, Dave Tito Wooten. Excuse me? Tito Wooten, safety, was the other one. Oh, Oh, I don't know about that, but I didn't know um, Dave Brown was uh, was taken in the supplemental yeah. draft, and uh, we know how that all turned out. <laughs> I got you, Marvin. Thank you. All right, Marvin. Appreciate right, the phone guys. call. Yeah, take care. Yeah, from what I'm reading, just for the sake of clarification, is you submit your bid if there's two equal bids, meaning two teams submitted second rounders, then it goes to the team which has the higher pick, meaning the worst record. Right. That's what they use as a tiebreaker. Right. So it's almost like a silent auction, essentially. Yes, that, that, yes. that's the best that, way. That to much I got. Yeah, I, I we got to get the rest of these rules right. I'm sorry if I misled anybody. I do want to make sure I get this right, and we'll know on tomorrow's show. I promise you. All right, let's head back to the lines. Marco's in Connecticut. Marco, what's happening? Hey, Lance and Paul, how are you? Doing what's right, going on? What do you got for us? I'm I'm doing well. Um, I called about the D line, and there's something I want to get to on that. But uh, I was just thinking about this as I was on hold. Um, Coach Shermer, I'm not sure if he was asked about it, but I think he might be. I, I could I could see him being asked this as it gets closer to the season. So it's his offense, and he's going to be calling the plays this year. That's I mean, all of that has been kind of come out. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm thinking back to McAdoo. And McAdoo was asked about this all the time with the play calling, more because I think it was like he, he liked to leave it a little bit more vague. But Shermer has been a little more direct about it. What what makes us think, um, aside from the fact that Shermer was a head coach before, right? But with all the stuff that a head coach has to deal with, why should we feel a little bit better about Shermer calling plays and being the head coach than we did with McAdoo? And I I was fine with McAdoo calling the plays. I guess the only issue was like he didn't really like to address it too much. But I was fine with him calling it because it was his offense. But we saw it kind of. I don't know. Like sometimes, especially when there were distractions happening, people like to point their fingers at, well, maybe if McAdoo gave up play calling duties, he'd be able to truly coach the entire team. And now we're, we're in a situation where basically the head coach is coming in and he's doing the same thing. So I, I want to get your take on that before I jump into the D-line. Well, the one thing that I will say that differentiates Shermer and McAdoo is Shermer's done it before. Marco, mm-hmm. and he has had an opportunity to learn from his mistakes in his first go-around in Cleveland when he was the head coach as well as the play caller because Paul and I had Brad Childress on when Shermer was initially hired, and Childress was brought in year two 
to be the offensive coordinator, and he said Shermer was still the guy that was directing the traffic. So, And Shermer's been on the record, Marco, saying, boy, there's a lot of things I know now going into my second go-around as a head coach mm-hmm. that I wish I knew the first time around. Whereas Ben McAdoo, he was thrown into the fire for the first time ever. Ben McAdoo was never a head coach when he was doing sure. multitasking for the first time. So I, I think that doesn't mean that the success rate is guaranteed, but I think Shermer, having had the experience unlike McAdoo, you should at least feel much better about that. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is um, I, I've always been vocal about my preference to separate the duties. I, 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 my, my feeling is the game is so complicated and so complex unless the guy who's doing it is is just so confident in what he's doing and he's got such a handle on things that he's got to. It's my preference that they're separate. Okay. Having said that, I do think that Shermer's got a better chance of making it work because he has done it before and because if it didn't work out to his satisfaction and he didn't think it worked out at least uh, uh, to the effectiveness level that he wanted to, he would have trashed it. I mean, yeah. he's like you said, he said he's learned from that yeah. time in Cleveland. Well, if that was one of the problems, then he would not be doing it now. I'm sure he would have just said, forget about it. I tried it before. It was a bad idea. No, no. That must have been one of the things that he thought worked well, and that's why he's going to continue to do it here. But I will tell you what, Mike Shula's done it before, obviously, as the offensive coordinator with the Panthers for a lot of years, and if for some reason Coach Shermer decides he wants to take a step back, at least he got an experienced guy who could take the playbook. Yeah. I I, I'm, I wanted your point of view on it, uh, both of you, but I, I overall feel – just in general, I'm not comparing him to McAdoo, but I feel confident about Coach Shermer. So if that's what he wants to do, I, I'm okay with it. Paul, I kind of lean towards you. I like to see almost like the Coughlin way of running things, you know, head coach and then offensive coordinator and defense coordinator are doing their yeah. thing. Well, um, and I'm with the two of you as well. I like the separation okay. of church and state. I've said that multiple times. However, to your point, Marco, and you said this at the beginning of the phone call, if I'm hiring Pat Shermer, I want his offensive mind, his thinking during games to dictate the offense. Just like the Giants brought in Ben McAdoo because they thought he had upside right. as an offensive coordinator. Now you elevate him to head coach. You liked what he did calling the offense for the first two years. Now, all of a sudden, you don't want him to be the play no, caller there, anymore? There were logical yeah. reasons why both guys wanted to do it the way they wanted to do it. And and, and you know what? It's You like apples, I like oranges. I mean, there's yeah. really no definitive right or wrong way to do it. Not at all. Uh, let, me, let me get to my call. I, I called about the defensive line. Um, the so hey, what? And maybe you guys can look at this because I don't know. Uh, so we're going to be playing a three-four defense, and I uh, so around this time of the year when things have really kind of calmed down, um, I love to look at the roster. I've always been uh, into making like a you know creating a fifty-three-man roster and then kind of fine-tuning it as the training camp has gone on. But I've always done that with the type of personnel that we've had in the past, not with a three-four. So I guess my question is, uh, a 3-4 defense, typically how many defensive linemen do 3-4 teams keep? And defensive linemen, I mean ends, uh, players that have their hands in the, gr- in the ground, ends, nose tackle. Uh, how many are usually kept? 
I, I think it's a great question. I mean, off the top of my head, I don't know. I haven't looked closely enough to see whether or not three, four teams are bound to keep more or less defensive linemen than four, three teams. But this is why yeah. it's a tricky question, Marco, because I know you're classifying guys that hybrid that sort of fall into the right. linebacker slash defensive line category. So it depends on, within your defense, are you only using this guy as a linebacker or are you going to utilize him in both positions? And if you're going to utilize him in both positions, how does that necessarily influence how many players you keep right. at both spots? Yeah, Marco, the other day on the I think with the scheme that Betcher uses, you have... Uh, defensive tackles, although John wants to call them still just defensive linemen, but I think you have defensive tackles. You have edge players who are your defensive ends and your outside linebackers, and then you have your inside linebackers. I think mm -hmm. you have to redefine the depth chart because there really, really is no such thing as an outside linebacker and a defensive end in terms of separation. Those guys are morphed into mutants, if you will, uh, in the Betcher scheme. So to me, and, and John just said he'd rather call a defensive line, edge, and inside linebacker. If he wants levels. to go that way, yeah. that's fine. The point is, it's now a three-position front seven instead of your typical four-position front seven, where you had defensive end, defensive tackle, inside linebacker, outside linebacker. It used to be four positions on the depth chart. Now it's only three with this scheme. Well, and here's the other way to look at it, Marco. You also need to okay. take into consideration Dalvin Tomlinson, okay? Mm -hmm. Last year, I would consider him a defensive tackle. I could see them moving him out to defensive end in certain alignments this year. So what do you consider Dalvin Tomlinson? Or what do you consider if B.J. Hill, meaning when Snacks is on the field, First or second down, Snacks is the nose. I think we're yes. all in agreement. Yes. But what happens if you still want to get Tomlinson on the field? Do you want to get B.J. Hill on the field? Where are you putting them? See, what what I see, you'll see a lot of in your four-man, your traditional four-man, you'll see Vernon standing up, okay? You'll see Snacks on the field down. You'll see Tom I think those will be your, your front four, so to speak. But then there's going to be either Carter or Kareem Martin standing up on the other side because it's going to be a five-man front with only three guys down. And and I think you'll also see six-man fronts, too, out of Betcher. Oh, okay, so so I'm, I'm going to make this quick because I know we're against... It's an impossible question to answer, but, uh, to be honest with you. That's yeah, the problem. And, and, and I, I get that. And I'm, I'm real excited for preseason to see to actually see them line up. But here's a couple questions that I have going on, and you get to them whenever you can. But So for me, it's like who – it sounds like Snacks is probably the most definable position as a nose tackle. Yes. So who, who is going to back him up in the event of giving him uh, some plays off, uh, in the event he's not playing? And then also, um, so leading up to, leading up to training camp, I heard, I've heard a great – so Tomlinson, obviously, last year, uh, good reviews and looking forward to him in the second year. And then B.J. Hill is getting great praise uh, under the radar, too. I think a lot of people are being kind of coy about it, too, because he is a gem, I think. And then yeah. Matt McIntosh was actually someone that I heard about a while back that he could be like a diamond in the rough. I know he hasn't played yet, but here's the point of what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of guys here. And then I don't know anything 
if they were standing in front of me or if they were on the field, I don't know anything about Josh Banks, uh, A.J. Francis, um, Jordan Williams, who I know the team was high on last year. So I'd love for you guys to dig in on this because I think there's a lot there about these, uh, these players, these new players, and then where they kind of line up on the team. So thanks, guys. All right, I'll, Marco, I'll be talking to you Appreciate soon. the phone call. Well, I mean, we could certainly have a more – detailed conversation on that subject another on time because we're really, we're really running out of time we and got I, one more caller too the only thing i will say is i i think if snacks is not on the field or he's not available to me tomlinson is the first guy that would step or in or robert thomas if robert, robert thomas, thomas is, is able to one. make the team because yeah. let's face it most of the guys on the second part of the depth chart are going to be in competition situations Robert Thomas, to me, would also be another candidate to sub for snacks on a particular play. Yeah, those would be the first two guys up. Pete is on Staten Island. Pete, what's happening? Oh, you got my name right today, Lance. There we Not go. Steve. Well, it's all about it's all about the screener. That's what it comes down to. So it's more of a compliment to the screener than it is to me, Pete. Listen, so what's happening? I wouldn't believe what he called me when I said my name was Pete. He goes, Cooper? I go, what? Well, listen, goes, Pete. In fairness, I, Pete, I think... I said, how'd you get Cooper out of peace? Pete, I'm sure you've been called far worse than Cooper in your life, okay? Uh-oh, so, oh, there's no so, question about so that. So I, I don't think I'm anywhere near Especially the top of that list. <laughs> there you go. That's why I said I wouldn't put myself atop the list in terms of me butchering your name. What I do you got not. today, Pete? Yeah. Now, real quick, uh, I heard you guys running off a list of uh, either receptions or touchdowns, right? We and had that earlier. Really, and I don't know where you got this list from or whatever. And I was surprised. It was a, a collection of four players that a, a tweeter wanted to know between those four players who was going to catch the most touchdown passes. Shepard was not one of the options that they were asking about, so therefore we didn't answer him. But I think you could easily expect Sterling Shepard to catch five or six touchdown passes, as he has in the past. Whether or not he catches more than that, I don't think he's going to be number one, so therefore we just did not throw him in as the fifth player in the equation. All right, don't be shocked because if you look up, look up Adam Thielen's numbers from last year. I know what you're going to say. When he into the slot. Mm-hmm. If you look up his numbers, yeah, and I think Kyle Rudolph might have been second. He's either first or second. Okay, look up his numbers, and don't be shocked if Sterling is the guy that winds up being the, the uh, step-out player of the year for the Giants. No, I think that's a reasonable surprised. guy. Yeah. He's, good, he's a good player. He makes a lot of plays. Nothing yeah. wrong with that. Yeah, so pull up, pull up Thielen's numbers, and, and I, I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised. Well, Thielen. He uses his slot a lot. Thielen. Pete, last year, Thielen had four touchdowns, just to use okay. him as a means of comparison. Stephon Diggs and Kyle Rudolph had eight apiece. So the okay. way the way that so I look at it, well, so, so, well, Thielen had more yardage right. than everybody else, but we were looking at it through a touchdown lens. So that's what oh, the, way, okay. the way that I look at it is Beckham is Diggs. Ingram is Rudolph, and then Shepard is Thielen. So I, I agree with you in terms of your comparisons, but if you then use those comparisons, Diggs and Rudolph, it's no surprise, had more touchdowns than, than Thielen. So therefore, Beckham and Ingram perhaps will have more touchdowns than Shepard. Right. Okay, guys, listen, go uh, go. Uh, I know Lance isn't going to be outside today, but I know Paul is probably, Paul you know, will definitely be out. and all of that stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> 
Absolutely. Enjoy the rest of your day, guys. All right, Pete, you as well. You Thanks too, for the Pete. phone Thank call. You. Did you get the power walk in yet, or is this a later one? Because uh, it's going to get really hot as the day progresses. Uh, so I'm actually, curious. I, my, my daughter went on a walk with me earlier today. Okay. We did four miles because she was short on time. Okay. And I will go out and do more miles later on today. Even if it's going to be like maybe, 95. Maybe I'll wait until tonight. I think that would be a wise. I might wait till But tonight. this is going to be one of those days where it could still very well be like 87 so? when it's 8 o'clock. And I'm just telling you, that's all. I'm giving you the weather report. That's all. Take it for what it's worth. Health and... does not know the calendar. No, not at all. I, I, I understand that. But I just wanted to make sure that you'd be stocked up on fluids and ready to go. Oh, I always, you do another I, one. That's I all. always bring just my looking out for the bottle of water with me. Of the uh, Paul Dottino Power Walk. Yes, it is a, a very hot one here in the uh, New York, New Jersey region. Anybody who lives outside of the region probably doesn't care what we just said, but we no. figured that we'd throw some of those little tidbits out there. All right, Big Blue Kickoff Live back Say up goodbye, and running. Lance. Yes, tomorrow at <laughs> noon Eastern, we'll continue to look ahead to training camp and get into some interesting conversations about the makeup of the roster as well as preview some of the upcoming Giants opponents. So stay tuned for that over the next few weeks. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. We'll speak to you tomorrow right here on Giants.com. Have a good one.